welcome to episode 112 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede, and I'm drinking Shiraz. My name is James Cohn, and I'm drinking Zinfandel. My name is Brittany Lombas, and I am drinking a Pinot Noir California blend. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swampflix. Yes. This is going to be a kind of weird episode because we usually do this halfway through a year where we look back at the best movies of the year before that we've caught up with since, you know, we did our favorite lists, you know, kind of recapping the best of 2019 today. But what makes it strange is that it's been such a hell year so far that like thinking back six months feels like thinking back a decade. I don't know about y'all, but like a lot of my memories of these movies are super fuzzy, more so than usual. It's like a mix. Like, I feel like we were sitting down and doing our best of 2019, not even a month ago. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that feels so close. But then, like, when I think about all the movies, they seem so far away. And we recorded a bunch of episodes together all in the same room at the start of this year. It was like a really great time to soak in each other's company, apparently, because it's going to be a while until... America gets its shit together. I know. So I don't know if that'll be happening anytime soon. James, what what have you been uh, thinking about uh, with the best of 2019 and looking back at like trying to remember what movies you've watched since we did those lists? I mean, honestly, like there's a few that I caught from last year that um, probably would have made my list. But honestly, like I, I don't know where we are, what is going on. I, I, don't, I haven't really been watching like movies or it, like I don't know. I'm just in a strange headspace right now. Like I can't even bring myself to watch movies like I used to. It's strange how like you would think that we would have all the time in the world to focus on something, but it's so hard to focus on anything. Yeah, exactly. But I'm going through these motions of like remaining within my structure like i'm creating these like schedules and like going through my normal routines as much as i possibly can obviously i'm not going out to movie theaters right now mm-hmm. or like hanging out with you guys in, in the flesh like i normally would but um <laughs> otherwise i'm like still trying to maintain this routine which is why we ended up like back at this episode we do it halfway through the year and it's like well i guess we still could do it No, you're right. I think routine helps. Like I've been going off of it. Like every day for like my lunch break, I would go eat my like salad with sardines outside and then come in and like listen to some like Madonna or Kate Bush and clear my head a little bit. And like I would have like, you know, two movies lined up in the afternoon. Like I had this whole thing going and then I stopped and that's when I started to feel weirder. So, yeah. I need to get back to the sardine salads and, <laughs> and the Kate Bush. Bush and stuff. Yeah. Well, James, you mentioned you have caught a couple movies after we did those lists that you appreciated. Can you recall what they were? Yes. Or what you thought about them? Well, um, the first one was Apollo 11. It's a documentary film that has like a bunch of like kind of never before seen archival footage of the NASA, you know, the moon mission and everything. And it's just astounding, like, some of the footage that they got. And um, definitely, if I would have seen it last year, would would have definitely topped the, like, documentaries from 2019. Like, it's pretty astounding. Yeah, because it's, like, NASA's actual cameras. Like, it's their own equipment. Yeah. And they, like, launched it into space, like, on the spaceship. There's that really beautiful scene where the moon unit is like reconnecting with like 
the rocket that's been like orbiting all night like the actual landing unit spend a night alone on the moon and they reconnect and it's like shot in this like really lovingly like lovers embracing after being away from each other sequence mm-hmm. and it's just like how how is this footage just not been in public viewing for this long it's like half a century just sort of sitting in a vault somewhere well and what sort of inspired me to see it was you know they launched that spacex recently that elon musk rocket into space did y'all watch that I heard about it on the internet, but I didn't didn't watch it. Oh my god! Like I could kind of imagine what it would have been like, like when Apollo Eleven first launched. Like it is so awe inspiring to see this like man made missile be shot into the atmosphere, and it does like stir something inside of you. And that's kind of what made me want to go back and Aww. watch Apollo Eleven. And um, again, it, it's a really beautiful awe-inspiring documentary also has that uh beautiful synth uh score like the actual like moog yeah like analog synths i saw it in the theater and just the uh images in that like giant format with that like really overwhelming uh synth soundtrack was like really cool that sounds cool like synth and space yeah, yeah. i really want to see this now real quick remember when we worked at like the national finance center Everyone was like, yeah, you work over there at NASA? And I'd be like, yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) That sounded so much cooler than what we actually did. I know. (laughs) We did take that tour. We saw the rockets being built, though. That was kind of cool. I know. And I used that information to back up my lie. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah, you know, the rockets are built with this really, like, special type of aluminum that's so light that it keeps everything light but i mean you'll just have to come by and see (laughs) (laughs) so maybe i could like tap back into my space fantasy (laughs) with that so okay two other movies i'll touch on um from last year and i think we might have talked about this brandon but i did see little women which i absolutely loved and like you know Going into it, I was like, oh, you know, it's going to be a period piece. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll look pretty and all that stuff, but I'm not going to really get into it. And I just, like, loved it so much. I was enthralled by it. I thought the costumes were gorgeous. You know, just an all-around great ensemble sort of piece. So that was one I really liked from last year. And then two other ones that definitely wouldn't have made my top 10 but i thought they were interesting enough where i would have at least like maybe mentioned them would be joker which i again i think me and brandon might have gotten into that a little bit on a episode a while back and also under the silver lake which i hated right which i I caught it relatively (laughs) recently and uh i totally get the hate like it's it's a mess it's so all over the place but I kind of admired it for that. Again, like, it wouldn't mm-hmm. have cracked the top ten. But I like movies, you know, like, I don't know, Magnolia, where there's just a little too much going on. Southland Tales. Southland Tales. And this kind of felt like that, too. But I, I don't know. I would have at least, like, mentioned it. Because I thought it had some really good aspects and mm-hmm. some really, like, frustrating ones as well. 
you're right. Like, I loved the Burger King King. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I could. The, the thing that was holding me back, I think, from getting into Under the Silver Lake a lot was the Garfield guy. Like, something about him just is so off putting to me where he irritates me. And. I don't know. I found him not to be likable. And I think the movie's playing with that a little bit too. Like yeah. he's supposed to be this gross yeah. hipster douchebag. But I also felt the whole time like the movie kind of identified with his point of view. It's kind of making fun of him for being a smelly, self-obsessed <laughs> But it's rooting neurotic. for him at the same time too. Yeah, and it ogles women's asses along with him. And I don't know. It just feels like it's so aligned with this point of view that like it only could have been made by somebody who identifies with that. And I don't know, I just found that a huge step down from It Follows, which was the director's previous movie. It felt like him kind of branching out, maybe unsuccessfully, but I would rather a director kind of go beyond their means than try to stick to what they know they're good at. So, For sure. Yeah, so even though it kind of failed, it was an interesting failure. I don't know, I kind of want to rewatch it now since we have this whole... Like the the world of conspiracy theorists, especially now, is insane. Like there, I have a friend who truly believes that Ellen DeGeneres is raping and torturing babies and eating them to look younger to get their adrenochrome. So she's not doing that. <laughs> I thought we were on the same page. <laughs> yeah, but like, and I'm just like, what is this? So then, like, I started googling all this stuff, and then. I was like, what is this in this crazy world that I didn't know about? And then I started thinking of Under the Silver Lake again. So I think like now that my interest is more into this like conspiracy world that I might like this movie a little more. I've actually like find that stuff less funny than I used to too. Like I used to listen to like Coast to Coast late at night or, Mm -hmm. you know, dig into like just weirder fringe theories about what's really going on in the world. But I feel like that stuff has become so mainstream in a way, like we're even people in the white house. Yeah. I think post Trump, it's hard to get into that because you know, you had the conspiracy about like the Clintons where they had like a pizza parlor or pedophile ring. Pizza gate. Pizza gate. Like that stuff is becoming like more mainstream and it's very frightening. Even his political career started as like birther theory stuff with Obama's birth certificate. Right. Like his whole political story has been built around that stuff. And it, it really does kind of suck the fun out of it. Because, it, yeah, like it was kind of funny. But then when you have like people making policies that legitimately believe this and their followers are believing it, it feels dangerous, like even tapping into it, <laughs> like and giving it life in any way. Well, that still makes the movie a movie for our times, though. If, oh. if, if that's what's going on in the mainstream. <laughs> Yes. But what, what about you, Brittany? Um, there's a movie that I watched like a couple of weeks ago. And oh, if I would have like watched it before we made our like decisions to talk about like our main movies, it might have been my main movie. But it's the movie Monos. Oh, I liked that. You like? I loved it. So yeah, Monos. I watched that recently. It's a Colombian movie that is basically about this group of like teenagers and they're on some like you don't really know what's going on like you don't know if there's like a like some kind of civil war going on or if there's some sort of like post-apocalyptic thing happening it's never really said you just know that like something bad has happened and these like kids these teens are part of this like rebel army 
and they're all on top of this mountain and they're watching over this prisoner of war they call Doctora. It's an American prisoner of war, female. And they're also watching over this cow named Shakira. (laughs) And like, they all have these names like Lady, Dog, Boom Boom, Rambo, like all these kids. And they all have like assault rifles and machetes and stuff like that. And at first it seems like, oh, like... They're just trying to, like, do their job, and they're not really, like, they don't come off as being horrible. You're just like, oh, they've just been brainwashed to, like, do this, and they're just still kids. Like, they party and have fun and eat mushrooms, and then one night, they start, like, shooting their guns all over, and a stray bullet kills Shakira, and the leader of the group is gonna take the fall for it, which pretty much means that whenever, like the people he reports to when they find out like he's going to get killed. So he commits suicide and then they have no leader and then they get another leader and it just becomes insane. Like at that point, like the whole movie goes in this like Lord of the flies angle and it goes like batshit crazy. But yeah, it's, it's a very intense movie and it's filmed in like, I don't know, in this like beautiful part of like, Columbia, like you're in the you know like jungles you're on top of the mountains and stuff and it's just really nice it's filmed really well also like apollo 11 it's really amplified by its score uh it's mm-hmm. the scores by mika levi who did like under the skin and jackie and a bunch of other like great mm. really intense scores and the music just makes you feel like nervous and like terrorized the whole time which goes along with the filmmaking the whole time it's like you're on the cusp of puking (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. you're so nervous for everybody you know you're nervous for like the the different teens in the group you're nervous for the prisoner of war i was so worried about shakira yeah i loved it i just i love this movie and i really wish i would have seen it last year because it would have definitely been in like probably my top 10 i think I also, another 2019 movie that I've watched since 2019 that I liked a lot is um, Fighting With My Family. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't really know what to expect going into it because I didn't know that much about the wrestler Paige, but I still liked it a lot, even though I didn't know anything about her. (laughs) Like at first, like I went in being like, oh, this movie won't mean much to me because I'm not familiar, but it did. Regardless. I think it does a pretty good job of like explaining what made her different at the time that she arrived at the company and like how mm-hmm. like all the other women who were working for the company were like basically models that learned how to wrestle, but she was actually like a wrestling nerd and a little gothy, you know? I, I like how the movie didn't make it like a, I'm the goth girl and I'm an outsider or whatever. Like there's a point in the movie where like she's being an asshole to the models and kind of like, mocking them because like you know they have like blonde hair they're thin gorgeous but like they're working just as hard or even harder than she is and i like that connection like the movie didn't get too sappy in that way where it was like oh yeah we're all just here trying to do the same shit Hmm. also worth noting that florence Pugh was in that midsummer and Little Women last year, like really the mvp of 2019 god i know and you know what i'm like really loving her I don't know. It's just fun, like, watching her, like, showcase how awesome she is. Um, But, yeah, I loved Fighting With My Family. That's another one that probably would have been in the top 25 for sure. I also watched The Joker. 
Well, let me take over there, if you don't mind. I mean, please. Okay. So, all three of mine that I've picked for today are all clown-themed. Oh, boy. Which was not intentional, but I <laughs> saw the theme, like, emerging as I was thinking back to movies I've caught up with in the last few months. The Year of the Clown. Also, y'all are making me a little nostalgic because I saw every one of those movies in the theater and I have not been to the movies in months. Uh, I was like, oh man, that was such a great experience. Nothing at home really registers that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I was crying watching Fighting With My Family in public, which I don't think I would be doing if I was watching it on my couch. Maybe I would. I don't know. I think now, yes. (laughs) I think we'd all cry if we'd watch it. So I caught the Joker movie when it was doing its Oscar run. Uh, It first came out like last October and I skipped it because it looked terrible. It looks like a bunch of movies I already like. So why would I bother? Like it looks like the King of Comedy. It looks like You Were Never Really Here, Taxi Driver, just kind of like a regurgitation of a bunch of tropes that have been done better and without superhero bullshit sort of weighing it down. So I skipped it and then it got nominated for Oscars. I think it won for original score. Uh, I think it won for Joaquin Phoenix's performance, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Remember, he cried and talked about animal rights. Oh, yeah. His speech was actually really unhinged. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I decided to give it a chance when it you know, came back at the AMC theaters, like around the Oscar times. And I honestly really liked it. It was surprisingly great. And I think what did it for me is that it is a really trashy genre film that did not belong in the Oscars race at all. But Joaquin Phoenix's performance is so unnerving and difficult to look at and honestly, shockingly scary (laughs) that I was just impressed by him. And I thought he really elevated the rest of the movie around him kind of the point where I was glad that everything else was so familiar and muted. So I could just, focus on how fucking terrifying he was in every scene yeah the way he physically transforms where his body just kind of curls into itself yeah it's definitely the performance of the year as far as someone fully like embodying a character that dude is sick and it's funny like how many different things people ascribe to it like it's both being held up by sort of like left-leaning critics as this like dangerous call to arms to people on the right, like kind of fringe MRA types who, you know, might become violent white men by watching this like political, you know, kind of anonymous style screed. And then the people on the right, some of them actually fall into that. And you've seen them at protests recently, like dressed up like the Joker, just going out to like smash windows and stuff and not actually participating in like the black lives matter ideology. That's like supposed to be in the forefront there. Mm hmm. But if you watch the movie itself, he is such a blank slate that I think people are projecting stuff onto him. Like, he has no political ideology in the film. And people just sort of see him, you know, attacking a couple Wall Street guys on the train as if that's like a eat the rich style political move mm-hmm. when really he's just like really dangerous and uh, <laughs> scary. Like, honestly the biggest shock I had in the theater in recent months was just watching that gun fall out of his jacket when he was dancing for children as a birthday clown. I screamed when I watched that and I was like in my room, (laughs) you know, I can't imagine (laughs) seeing that in a theater. I would have probably cried and shit my pants. Well, I know that you, you didn't like the movie as much as James and I, so I kind of want to hear what your thoughts are on it in general. So I kind of like, I think the last time we kind of 
did an episode. I briefly talked about it because I had just watched it and I was kind of hard on it. Well, I watched it again because I'm like, well, it's it's on HBO and I have access to it now. So might as well watch it a second time for free. And I liked it a little bit more. And I think the part of the movie that I didn't care for that much was the Batman aspect of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't really need that. Yeah, like just having him, watching him like just turn into this like monster slowly was super fascinating. But I I think what took away from it was like the weird shit at the fence with the stupid Bruce Wayne kid and what I didn't care. I didn't care about the weird is he really my dad plot. There's a shot of uh, Bruce's mom's pearls bouncing on the concrete again. Oh, and I could see like people going, oh, like, you know, totally getting off on that. And <laughs> I like just could not give a shit. <laughs> and that's like, I think the moment that I realized that I don't like superhero stuff that much anymore. <laughs> well, I know James isn't a really a big superhero fan either. So I was kind of surprised that he was into this one. What I really liked is kind of like you said with, the projection thing. Like I also read a lot about how people took it as a statement about mental illness and how, you know, we're kind of failing people in regards to mental health. And I I do think it's true that his character, like you said, is this blank slate. And I think your point is right about the political aspect. And I think that shows up in the end where he kind of starts this political movement when he had no real intention of doing so. Like people just kind of took him as this like political actor when really had no aspirations to do that. Yeah, he's like a Forrest Gump or like a Chauncey Gardner type character where people hear him say these sort of vague noncommittal things about like, man, the world sure is getting crazier out there and like reading into it what they want to see. So it's been kind of funny to hear people do that outside of the movie too. But I do think that's pretty telling and... That is kind of how dog whistle politics works, especially in the Trump era. Like just saying these vague things about, you know, about minorities or about they're going to come tear down the statues of our great leaders. And it's like this vague dog whistle stuff that can kind of try to get a whole group of people that have hate in their heart to like vote a certain way. So I, I don't know. I thought it was pretty on point with like where our politics are. Yeah. Even though I I think his performance does more for it than the creative direction. Like, I don't think Todd Phillips really was giving the movie that much significance. A lot of like what I appreciated about that. And, you know, a lot of his like blank slate qualities are coming from Phoenix's performance. He really does like make the movie. I enjoyed it more than I expected to just because he is such a powerhouse terrifying presence in it yeah he kind of steals the show from the joker (laughs) right if that makes sense like this movie could have been called the the clown man (laughs) and i think it would have been just as good (laughs) murder clown murder clown boy (laughs) (laughs) so my next clown movie is more in line with fighting with my family Uh, it's called family is it the family i'm thinking of It is the Juggalo family. My fam. (laughs) So Taylor Schilling from Orange is the New Black plays this like business minded aunt. You see her in the first scene at the gathering of the Juggalos in her like business suit, 
with the juggalo paint on and <laughs> it does like a full record scratch like you're probably wondering how i got here uh like classic corny <laughs> mainstream comedy setup cool it turns out it is kind of a corny mainstream comedy like she is business obsessed and she has to learn the value of family over the course of the movie her brother has to go deal with an emergency and leaves her niece in her care and her niece is a weirdo and an outcast and is being sort of indoctrinated in a juggalo culture and she finds it like very uh, alarming and has to you know learn to accept her kid for who she is mm-hmm. i mean her niece for who she is and grows to like the juggalos over the course of the movie uh there's this really heartwarming scene at the gathering where the juggalos are chanting for her to show her tits to the audience oh god uh and then she she explains like no i'm looking for my niece she's missing at this like open-air drug market y'all have created out here and then they all like band together to help out the kid like it becomes this like really wholesome portrait of like how juggalos are secretly kind of wholesome they're just like unfashionable and poor exactly like i think as the like i've always been fascinated with like juggalos and juggalettes and as like time goes by like like the more i find out about them the nicer they seem recently like years ago they had like a fuck your confederate flag t-shirt with like the confederate flag burning and they're like reselling it now and like donating to black lives matter (laughs) it's like what i don't know they're beautiful they're beautiful people well and i remember watching this documentary about danny brown who is one of my favorite rappers and he went to the gathering the gathering and do they accept him with open arms and he talks about how like these are my people like they're very open-minded and he ends up like having a great time and encounters no real like i don't know you would have a stereotype that they might be maybe a little racist or you know backwards in some way but it's right, just or a, like like gun toting but type. no not really it's but like no. they're just outcasts that want to have a sense of family for me, it was uh, Nathan Rabin's book, You Don't Know Me, But You Don't Like Me. Oh, yeah. Where he like followed Fish and ICP around for a year and was like, okay, these are you know two bands where everyone hates their fans, but no one actually like engages with them or like listens to the music. So I'm going to like immerse myself in their culture and just see what they're actually like. And both groups ended up being like this like really tight knit, you know, wholesome communities that really took care of each other and are like yeah. probably a good example of how we could be more connected and one yep. Raven ended up like being a fan, like a genuine fan himself. Well that book um takes days to read. Uh this movie is under eighty minutes, so if you don't have the time to <laughs> to read the whole book, uh, I think family's a good, funny comedy, kind of like The Bronze, where like the main character is just so aggressively uninterested in whether or not you find her likable. I like that aspect of it a lot. And also, it, it's just good PR for Juggalos, which are the good crime clowns. It's oh. the people we should be celebrating. Exactly. We shouldn't be celebrating the Joker and shit. We should... <laughs> <laughs> it should be those clowns. No, I like really want to. I'm like really stoked about watching this. And I think you'd love it. Let me throw this out there. If COVID-19 goes away, we should all go to the next gathering and like watch a bunch of like Juggalo themed stuff. And speaking of the Juggalos being on the right <laughs> side of history, they canceled the gathering this year because they couldn't put one Juggalo life at risk. Uh, I know. And, and you know what? And the fucking administration wants to like claim that the juggalos are a terrorist group remember that shit and they had like people march for the juggalos like it's insane 
the and FBI de- uh, designated them as a gang. Uh, in well, like you know what? Or something let's, like that. let's let's be part of that gang. Let's <laughs> let's get them to. Jump I'm from Shelmet. This is my natural trajectory. It's to become a juggalo over time. And you know what? So, give into it, Brandon. That is your destiny. <laughs> well. We have one more clown movie to discuss because I'm a terrible person. And then we'll get into some more uh, Oscar snubbed type 2019 movies that should have had uh, more acclaim than they did. Mm-hmm. And all that's coming up to you right, right, right now. now. You can't miss his red and white polka dot suit or his creepy face mask. Meet Southwest Florida's Wrinkles the Clown. People pay me to go scare their friends. Uh, people pay me to go dance at their parties. Uh... You know, that kind of thing's bar mitzvahs and whatnot. As unnerving as his face appears, Wrinkles is actually a quirky clown, if you can't tell. Ever since these kids put me on the internet, I mean, my floor rigs nonstop. It's ridiculous. An internet hit. A Google Plus account is dedicated to his sightings. Here he is in downtown Fort Myers and the Collier County Fair. And if you haven't seen this video, good luck going to sleep tonight. This creepy clown quietly lurking in this little girl's room. So I already mentioned a couple clown movies from last year that I caught up with, but none are as great as the documentary that's currently on Hulu right now called Wrinkles the Clown. I don't even know if documentary is the right word, actually. It's like a performance art project (laughs) that's on Hulu right now. It lies to you the same way that like Exit Through the Gift Shop or the Andy Kaufman documentary I'm from Hollywood do, where there's like a kayfabe aspect to it. It presents an evil clown in Florida that people have spotted in the wild. Supposedly, he is for hire to scare your children. Uh, people call his voicemail, uh, and they're real voicemail calls where children are screaming in the background, like as if they're about to be murdered, while their parents are like, Come over here, my kid won't behave correctly. Come scare them, wrinkles. But mostly, he's just sort of like spotted in the wild. Like, there's closed circuit TV clips of him under a little girl's bed just sort of like crawling out and like putting a little teddy bear next to her while she's sleeping or like grainy cell phone footage of him just like kind of lurking in the woods and the movie sort of presents this as the truth up front that there's just this evil old creepy clown roaming the like swamps in florida and then you're introduced to wrinkles as a personality he's got this like sort of east coast working class voice uh, he drinks Natty Ice and eats microwave dinners and just kind of talks like this. You know, it's just a job. I just get <laughs> calls. Some people want me to scare their kids. You know, I offer behavioral services. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, spoilers for Wrinkles the Clown. I mean, if you care. Uh, at some point, this like presented version of reality breaks down. And the movie reveals itself to be this sort of performance art project where this guy created this character wrinkles the clown and put him out in the world and just sort of let people do what they will with him uh this sort of behavioral services bullshit was just a urban legend that started and people started doing it for real where they called his phone number and left voicemails to scare their children uh there's a psychologist that explains that this is like traumatizing you should not do this to your kids the media picks it up there's a lot of late night television or like local news broadcasts that report on wrinkles out in the wilds and then that spreads out exponentially where other cities in the american south and then abroad have these like creepy clown sightings at the edge of town and it gets really violent and out of control maybe even bigger than the guy who created the character expected it to and in a roundabout way and i think this is what really interested me about it was it becomes 
a movie about how urban legends are spread on the internet, especially among children who have like unsupervised internet access. And they sort of create this lore around this character that doesn't really exist, but they like some kids are inspired by it and, you know, want to create their own creepy content about clowns. Uh, Some kids are inspired by it and want to go out in the world with machetes and scare strangers and uh, almost get shot because of it. And there's just this whole like creepy clown imaginary space that the character inspires. And I think the movie, what I really liked about it was that not only is it internet focused, but it really just sort of like comes at it from a lot of different angles. It talks about like the history of the creepy clown in movies and like the history of urban legends over time and like how that's changed in recent years. And I was just really impressed by how much ground it was able to cover over something that has become sort of a cliche, especially in the years since um, it came out, uh, the remake. So I, I guess just to sort of open it up to y'all, because this could go either way, were you also impressed with this movie, or did you think it was just sort of like a trashy time waster? Because I think if you're not interested in these topics, it could either turn you off or like really hold your interest. It was super interesting. Um, at first, like just looking at the um, like the cover and stuff like that of it, I'm like, oh, this is like some trashy clown movie Brandon found, and we're gonna have to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean seems like on brand, but the part that I loved was kind of like that latter half of it where that fake out gets cleared up. And there's more talk about how it's like a modern day urban legend. And then it revisits urban legends. And I love that kid, (laughs) that little like chunky little boy who is like so fascinated and like inspired by this clown. (laughs) I love that kid. I'm curious to see what happens to him when he gets older. There's a few of them too. Like there's a few kids who are like really inspired to create their own like online art and they get these like you know twenty click YouTube videos right. uh, out of it, and their parents are like kind of out of the loop. They're like not even really sure what their kids are doing online, which is terrifying. Um, so that was also kind of scary because like I don't have any children that like I, like I don't have nieces or nephews, and I don't have kids, so I'm like kind of out of the loop with all that stuff. So it's kind of was crazy seeing how like these little bitty kids, like some of these kids looked like they were seven years old making YouTube videos or younger. Like I I was just blown away by that and how like this YouTube culture and like this, you know, wrinkles, the clown urban legend, like impacted like these itty bitty kids. That was kind of wild to me. And we've seen with slender man that sometimes that gets out of control and the kids like hurt each other (laughs) and kill each other. Yeah. But yeah, it kind of reminded me, like, the only thing I ever partook in when I was, like, little or younger was, like, the Bloody Mary thing. Me too, yeah. The Candyman thing. And uh, the only thing I was terrified of was, like, the light as a feather, stiff as a board stuff. Like, I left a sleepover one time because everybody was doing it. And I was like, fuck, we're all going to die and demon's going to come get us. (laughs) I was that lame kid. And I'm like, I'm going to call my mom. So yeah, I liked the whole documentary itself. Like I just thought it was such a wild ride, but the information and like the second half of it was really awesome. So yeah, I liked it. Uh, how about you, you James? <laughs> I felt deeply meh about the whole thing. Oh damn! You know, I thought the most interesting part was 
And I remember this happening, I guess, a few years ago when there was all that, all these outbreaks of like clown sightings. You remember that? Like, yeah, but did this spark it? Because I feel like it was it like seems the like same it did. time. It feels like it's claiming ownership over it. Whether or not you want to take its word for it is something, but it really does feel like this was the, you know, ground zero of right. the creepy clown phenomenon. But what I think, what I found fascinating was that something, you know, basically like this like fake urban legend you've created can actually spawn real life events, like real life people in the woods, like trying to scare people. And what I thought was disappointing with this, I don't know if you want to call it documentary or mockumentary or art piece, whatever, is that the most interesting part was that, and that was what, three minutes of news clips towards the end of the film. And I wish they would have really delved more into that because that's what I think is fascinating about this kind of internet folklore stuff is it's kind of easy to dupe people in the beginning. You know, you create some fake like CCTV stuff and kind of build this legend, but it's crazy how that can spiral into like real life. I don't think it is that easy to dupe people to this level. Like you can create all kinds of trickery online that might someone be like, Oh, I thought that was real. Ha, huh, That's kind of a weird trick. But for it to become such a tangible thing that takes on a life of its own. Well, I will say that that first clip was the most effective. The one where he's like coming out of the kids, like under the bed Mm -hmm. and all that. Like that, like genuinely got me. I was like, oh, shit. The security cam style footage. Yeah. And I love that stuff. And I I know Brandon's a fan, too, of like the, you know, found footage or the cell phone camera, the webcam I find all that stuff really cool stylistically. I just didn't think that the grand reveal of like, ah, you see, it's like this artist, performance artist that started this whole thing. It's like, that's kind of what I assumed in the beginning. Well, yeah, because we know that demon clowns are not real. <laughs> right, but then, <laughs> We're not but then it like presents this like for an like hour, like, oh, look, it's this old man in Florida that drinks Natty Light. And for me, I was like, like, really? Like, that doesn't seem true. Like a guy in his trailer drinking, dressing up as a clown to like, uh, I didn't, I didn't buy that at all. And then when they have the reveal of, oh, you see, it's a performance artist. It's like, okay, like that's, duh, duh, that's kind (laughs) of what I thought. And then the movie just kind of goes like in a whimper. And again, I think it passes over the most interesting part, which is like the copycats that it spawned because that had real impact. Like that footage they had of the college students, like in a mad craze, like running after clowns Mm -hmm. in the woods had like a real world impact. So you didn't feel that at all with the child abuse in the first like 20 minutes? Because that really got under my skin. Well... I thought I thought the parents are fucked. Like I Yeah. I mean that says a lot about like how, you know, like they even said you can't really spank your kids anymore, but now we have to like psychologically abuse him. Like I thought it was super messed up. So that that part did did affect me, but it's like I would be affected by a part like that and then you have this highly stylized, you know, dramatic like movie stuff where he's carrying a girl 
into the woods or these shots of him with like putting blood on his face and putting blood on the wall. But those aren't just in a vacuum for their own sake. They're illustrations of stories that people have made up about wrinkles. So like you hear audio clips of like kids explaining, you know, this is where wrinkles comes from. And like what he does is he goes in your house and he like takes a boy back to his own layer and then makes paint on the wall with the boy's blood. And that's where the imagery comes from is it's like dramatic recreations of the legends that people have created without this artist's input. It's, it's kind of taken on a life outside of him. So while we're on the topic of this kid's child abuse stuff, it was hard for me to figure out what was real and what wasn't. So y'all might be able to help me with this. Did that clown really go into people's backyards and like tap on the windows and stuff? Or was that all part of it's staged? It's all staged. So wrinkles never visited any kids. Like no parent ever said, here's a hundred bucks. Come scare my kid. Well, the parents leave those voicemails. Right. But he never actually, but he never went over. I couldn't figure out if he went over or not. The act of making the threat is the abuse. Right. Like there's no actual clown (laughs) intervention, but just like the threat that a clown will come eat you is what scares the child because it's real to them. See, and that's like, I kind of wish if the movie's going to play with so many different genres and if it is like kind of kayfabe, like, you know, you're lying to the audience. I don't see why you wouldn't end it on a bang with like him actually, you could do it in some like found footage way or pretend it's an outtake or have him actually like do something to a child. They like teased it. And then it like ends on this kind of like, aha, you see, it's all performance art and look at this folklore, urban legend we've created. Like, why not be a little more titillating and do something like kind of violent and fucked up and really leave the audience like, whoa, like, wait, what did I just see? Like, he said it was performance art, but now he like actually killed this child. Like, you know, like it could have been even more playful in that way. Well, I think what it does, it, like the reason it exists is because the urban legend got so out of hand that it was actually inspiring like potential real world violence. And he felt like he had to put a stop to it. He was like, okay, this has kind of gotten out of control. I'm going to like reveal my hand and just sort of like dig through all of the topics. I feel like this project has surfaced in like an interesting way and sort of dig through how it's been dealt with in the media and taken at face value mm. as like a real story right? along different media outlets. And it's sort of like a catalog. And that's why I called it like a performance art project because it's really just documenting how far it went and uh-huh. like where he decided to stop it. And I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I wish he would have kept the legend going and like not stopped it. Like try to like a fake out being like, you know what, this went too far and then ended on something that keeps the legend going instead of just, like you said, showing all your cards that like totally took the wind out of the sails for me. But I don't think this movie is big enough. I don't think it's going to reach enough people to put a stop to this creepy clown stuff. Like maybe the fad has died out a little bit in the past couple of years because we have like, you know. COVID-19 and like police brutality to deal with. I've got bigger issues to contend with at the moment, Mm -hmm. but it's not like this played in every cinema across the country. And I guarantee there's like some YouTube rabbit hole you can go down right now where like kids are still creating like creepy clown urban legends online right now. I think it's really out of his hands. I don't think the movie could keep the legend alive or could stop it if it wanted to. It's, it's kind of like, 
I started something and it's it's its own thing now and I have to walk away. Yeah, this movie made me also think of remember the the chicken bear thing? What? So like maybe a year ago or two ago someone on like Facebook Marketplace and Metairie posted this ad saying if you want me to make a bear out of a raw chicken. I can sew a, a teddy bear out of raw chicken. Oh, I did. I saw that. Remember that? I saw the picture And it was of it, like yeah. this huge thing. And the news picked it up and all this stuff picked it up. And like four weeks ago, I saw like that picture was like from someone in Russia on Reddit. You know what I mean? Like the origin of the chicken bear wasn't really <laughs> in Metairie. <laughs> so it made me think of this clown thing where like how somebody could just take something fake it out like and cause like this urban legend in this like modern day technology that we have kind of like how wrinkles happened you know and like we were talking about the top of the episode too just like conspiracy theories have taken a life of their own you could throw all the facts you want at people who like you know believe that masks don't protect you from coronavirus and they just don't listen because they are plugged into some other part of the internet that's giving them this like crazy non-scientific information and that's what they've chosen to believe the promise of the internet too is that you're going to have all this information at your fingertips we're all going to be more plugged into like a shared reality but really it's also opened all these like dark corners that people go into and like lose their goddamn minds down these like little rabbit holes and i find that concept interesting and maybe this movie is a little too small scale and a little too trashy to like really satisfy that kind of thinking but i think it provokes a lot of different topics like that i just don't know if it added anything new to the fact that we know like how easy it is to be duped on the internet and how easy it is to you know like deep fakes and all this stuff to like falsify reality i don't know if like wrinkles the clown really like brought anything new to that discussion even just like kids unchecked internet time just the eeriness of that didn't really like well like, register like with you, you said in with any slender way. man that came you know years ago i don't yeah like, i don't know i guess it kind of deepened my understanding of that but not enough to justify the 90 minutes it took to get there i don't there were aspects i i did like i thought wrinkles himself is terrifying like that mask, like I would love to see just like a straightforward fictional movie with Wrinkles the Clown, like a genre slasher flick to keep the like this mythology alive. Kind of like they did like a Slender Man movie. I think I would have preferred that to this kind of a little bit of documentary, a little bit of performance art, a little bit of movie kind of all mixed into one. Did... Any of y'all, like, find some kind of, like, comfort and enjoyment in the idea of Wrinkles being that old man in the van? I wish it was the old man in the van. Like, right. that's a great story. I, want- I, I mean, like James said, it's absurd it. and, like, unbelievable from the beginning. But I yeah. found him so charming. Right. Like, that part where he goes to the strip club and he's like, what am I yes. doing? Bring one of the girls home into the van? <laughs> and he's like eating hungry man dinners. That's the parts I love because that felt like like a movie, <laughs> like a fictional right. movie starring Wrinkles the Clown. And then when it broke the fourth wall, yeah. that's when it sort of lost me. Personally, I think that if this was actually a 140 minute long movie, you would have gotten bored of that very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
to the point where I doubt that you actually watched the Slenderman movie that came out. It looked fucking terrible. No, I didn't. Sad for you if you did. <laughs> I didn't. I think this movie, what it does is it takes that multimedia approach where it approaches the subject from like every possible angle and gives you small tastes of different ideas mm. and like really like gets your brain going. I really like the sort of just like imaginative provocation that it sort of conjures up with a pretty small scale art project that was really just a few YouTube clips and like some late night comedian jokes that like did have a real world impact, but really was kind of minuscule. I think the movie takes those like small potatoes and like really opens up the project to like different ideas about what life online is like and like what the truth means right now. And I don't know. I feel like it did a lot with like a really little bit of material. Also, I just found the actor that played wrinkles in the movie very charming, but I don't know necessarily if I would have think that could justify an entire two hour film. Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is Adam Sandler. <laughs> Thank you. I stand before you trembling with thankful glee as I receive the so-called best actor trophy, independently speaking, of course. <laughs> First off, it is a gr- it's great to see our host Aubrey Plaza again. Aubrey and I did a movie entitled Funny People 11 years ago. That was actually the last time critics pretended not to hate me for five fucking minutes. <laughs> Catch you in another 11 years, Aubrey. Okay. I'd like to also give a shout out to my fellow nominees who will now and forever be known as the guys who lost to fucking Adam Sandler. <laughs> so now it's time to get into some more respectable cinema, some like real indie darling faves. Both of y'all picked A24 films that have multiple articles written about them, about how they were snubbed at the Oscars. So we're really getting into some like finery here. I want to start with Britney's pick, though, because it was James's number one film of last year. I'm so glad you picked this. And Britney saw it after we did our collective, like, best of the year lists. Mm-hmm. So what did you make us watch for today, Brittany? So my choice for today was the movie Uncut Gems. I remember there was, like, a pretty big conversation had about it when we did our top of uh, 2019 that I did not partake in because I didn't watch it. But it kind of sounded interesting. And once it became available on Netflix, I was able to see it a couple, like about a month or so ago. And I loved it. I loved it so much. And I am pissed that I didn't watch it because it didn't make it onto my damn list. But here I am now talking about it. So I guess it has some life. So basically, as we all know, Uncut Jim stars Adam Sandler and he is a gambling addict and um, jeweler who works in the Diamond District in New York. And he is just obsessed with constantly placing bets on all kinds of stuff with other people's money to the point where like I was feeling, I, I don't know, my anxiety was like just at a tipping point for like the whole movie, which was almost like what, two hours long. It's a pretty long over movie. two hours, over two hours. I, I just, between like the action going on throughout the movie, the loud talking, like everyone in this movie kind of is just constantly talking over each other. And which I like, cause that's how like my family is. So it kind of has that real life 
chaos to it and then the soundtrack like just this insane music bumping in the background while all this is happening it just constantly has like adrenaline rushing through you like throughout this entire like amped up fucking movie and i love that it was kind of nice because with all the COVID 19 shit going on to watch a movie that kind of put a bunch of life back into me which i really have a, an appreciation for the movie for it being able to do that and the more I kind of researched this movie a little bit, the more I, I appreciated it, too. Like, I didn't realize that a lot of the people in the film were actually people who, like, hang out and work in the Diamond District. They weren't really actors. And I became fascinated with, like, Julia Fox, um, who plays um, Adam Sandler's character Howard, his employee and girlfriend. So... In real life, Julia Fox, or her character in the film is, I think, Julia DeFiore. The character is essentially based off of her in real life. Like, she's just this New York party girl who's a hustler. And you can really tell that authenticity coming through her character because she's essentially just being herself. And I thought that was really cool. She also has great taste in lingerie. She has great taste in lingerie. And I just love like her attitude towards everything, like her confidence, like that scene with her at the club with the weekends. I love so much. (laughs) Also worth noting this, this is a period piece set in 2012. So it's like Kevin Garnett is still, you know, at the height of his basketball skills. And the weekend is like just about to, He's become new. like a big deal. <laughs> right. And he gets yeah. punched in the face by Adam Sandler. Just pretty great. Which is great. So I don't know shit about sports. And I didn't know that Kevin Barnett was a real basketball player. And then when I found <laughs> out that he was, that kind of set the time for me too. Because I, isn't he retired now? Yeah. He is now. But it, yeah, okay. in his heyday, he was like definitely one of the top players in the NBA with the, you know, the Celtics and Timberwolves and all that. And he's good in this movie, too. He's so good. Like, I was so surprised to find out that he wasn't an act, like an actor. Like, he was actually, like, a basketball player <laughs> who was acting. Yeah, the, he's given one of the biggest scenes, too, where, like, he actually calls Adam Sandler out on his exploitative tendencies. Like, mm-hmm. Adam Sandler kind of comes up with this bullshit explanation about how he feels this like kinship with the Ethiopian Jews who have like mined this gem that he's selling for like a 4,000% mm-hmm. markup on the backs of their labor. And Kevin Garnett's like, that's exploitation. That's bad. Right, uh, and Adam right. Sandler and him sort of have this like philosophical back and forth about what <laughs> is worth the work. And I love that the movie did that, how it didn't just be like, Oh, like we're just like a film about this jeweler. Like it actually brought up like, the background of this like blood diamond uh, culture, you know? And I thought that was really cool. Like it starts off that way where you're really shown like, you know, the pretty little gym on your hand has a background and it sucks and it's not worth it. Cause I don't know, like that disgust, like I always get grossed out when I'm like, when I pass by like Oakland heart on the way to go to Trader Joe's or like passing by a Zales or something. I just feel so grossed out like just looking at it and like watching people fawn over the shit that looks like glass to me. And the fact that knowing that people are like dying to get that dumb shit here, like it's just crazy. So I think like the film kind of starting off that way was awesome. Like you're immediately like in Ethiopia watching all the shit that these like people have to deal with just to get this fucking rock. 
you know, made into a necklace or whatever. That opening is like a great intro to the movie's vibe too, because it starts mm-hmm. with this like really brutal hard facts version mm-hmm. of like the pain that goes into mining this stuff. Right. And then the movie like dives into the gem mm. that they pull out and like shows the real beauty of it. And this sort of like cosmic power that that kind of beauty has, like it forms these sort of like abstract, beautiful shapes where that mm-hmm. on a point, never synth wave sort of like, crashes over you and you're like really immersed in it and then those shapes turn out to be a colonoscopy where you're like inside of adam sandler's asshole and colon (laughs) and you like pull out of that so then you realize like oh this movie has like a really sick sense of humor at it as well that (laughs) opening really is like one of the better like stretches i think i love the opening and i love how like with this this uncut gem right the opal it kind of adds this like mysticism to the movie where like this like really hard thriller, I guess, kind of has this magical element to it throughout the whole movie. It, like it has like a weird like element of whimsy just from this rock. And like, I kind of thought that was pretty weird. Like it had, the, it gave me this weird feeling where I was kind of like, it's like I'm watching like, you know, The Secret of Nim or something. And <laughs> there's so much other weird shit happening. Especially to Sandler and to um, Garnett. Like, mm-hmm. the two of them really see something special in this gem and are willing to fuck over a lot of people <laughs> in their, like, uh, journeys to, like, hold possession of it. You know, from the get-go, like, immediately, once you, like, you know, Howard starts talking and the colonoscopy's done, <laughs> you know, that very first intro to him, I'm like, this guy is going to fuck up so bad. And throughout the entire movie, it's like right whenever he's about to pay off his debts, he takes it to another level. And he's like, well, there's something better out there. There's something more I can get. And he just constantly like, right when you think he's going to resolve his issues, it gets worse and worse. Well, he's a gambling and worse addict. And worse. Right. Well, and he is like, an, not just a gambling addict, but I think an addict in general in that, it's kind of this pinball sort of situation where he's bouncing from one extreme to another, just trying to like hold on that scene. I think that like probably the best scene in the film where he's been trying desperately to get this jewel back. They're trying to bring it back to him, but they're stuck in that, like between the glass. Oh, the bulletproof glass, like cage. Right. And it's like the thing he wants the thing that would make his life complete so much better is right there. He can see it right through the glass, but he can't get it. And he's getting out hammers. He's doing everything he can to break through. And it's like, not only is that gambling addiction, that's like every addiction. One thing watching this film back a second time, like I knew this was a great Sandler performance, but I kept like comparing it to Punch Drunk Love, which you know, is widely considered his other great, like dramatic performance. That one and funny people and funny people. But I think what's different about this one is like how wholly unlikable. And I, I think that's one thing, Brandon, we talked about before we argued about that. Yeah. I found him very unlikable. (laughs) I think I was sort of, I think I was attached to this punch drunk love version of Adam Sandler we're like, oh, he's sad, but we sympathize with him. But watching it right. a second time, that's not really the case. Like, he's a bad person. And he, like, destroys everything around him, which is why 
I felt like this performance was even more powerful. Like if I can feel something for a wholly unsympathetic character, that means the actor has done something right. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling so vindicated six months later. I was I was arguing this with you. At the well, time. I'm gonna ruin it because I think he was nice. No, no fuck I, Howard. No, no, but I think my opinion of the movie has actually went up even more because on first viewing, I was attached to like Adam Sandler as kind mm-hmm. of this complicated actor that you know we kind of project things onto him. Watching it again, kind of taking his character at face value. It's like, no, no, this guy, he is a bad dude, but my God, what a great performance where I still feel something for him, even though he's bad. And those performances are really hard to pull off. I think I'm still stuck in the first view, like, because that's where I'm, I've only seen it once. And I, and that's how I feel. I think it's because I'm so familiar with Adam Sandler that like, underneath all the horrible shit Howard does. Like, I still feel like there's some heart there. And, and it was really Adam hard Sandler for me brings. to see him as a villain. Well, there, there was talk of, like, I think initially they wanted Jonah Hill to play the role of Howard. And when I thought about that, I was like, I think this movie would have been so different. And I think I would have looked at that character in an entirely different light. Because I don't like Jonah Hill that much. Well, yeah, and, and like Sandler's pulling from his like Billy Madison style of just yelling, yelling. at everything. <laughs> uh, and there is like a trigger response where you find that funny, whether or not he's being a monstrous and asshole. Like you're like, oh, like, you know, he's like a good guy. He just has a lot of issues he needs to work out. And it sucks. That's what like Punch Drunk Love was like that. Oh, he's got this dark side to him, but he's still kind of this sweet, innocent thing underneath all that mm-hmm. i don't feel like he did the same thing in this it's such a vastly different performance like mm-hmm. again when i watched it the first time i thought like oh he's kind of doing the punch drunk love thing like no he's not there's not that sweet innocent thing underneath it's black and yet i still feel empathy for him and again i, I just think that's really remarkable in punch drunk love he's like holding back that explosive release where like the whole world is antagonizing him because he feels so much anxiety mm. over everything um and he's very quiet and kind of like a quiet sad sack while people are just unloading stuff on him and then as the movie goes on that tension like releases sometimes uh, he'll like break a window or like mm-hmm. say some violent stuff during phone sex that like sort of releases that like tension he's building up whereas in this movie he doesn't hold anything in. As soon as he's angry, you know it because he screams at top volume <laughs> no matter what situation he's in. Honestly, I, I like this movie a lot more than Punch Drunk Love because that movie, I think, is like so effective in creating anxiety that it like kind of annoys me. Like The act of watching it is unpleasant. The difference here is that he is yelling a lot, which, like I said, calls back to that Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore style of like comedy of his where like it's equally anxious and agitating mm-hmm. but it's also funny i think there's like a darkly funny hmm. performance even though he's playing a deeply flawed person it is funny but it also is you know i think the softies like especially do like these experimental sort of films where you like you just feel it like the music and how everyone's talking over each other and it's like there is humor in that but there's also always an underlying anxiety like from the get-go like you said that very first scene 
where you have the, you know, the miner whose leg has been broken. And then the miners start arguing with the Chinese foreman, I guess, foreman or whatever. And they're like yelling over each other. And that's in the very first, like 10 seconds of the movie. Mm -hmm. And it never lets up. The the whole movie is like at that level. It's all doesn't change (laughs) all at that level through the very end, which I don't know if we're going to spoil anything, but then the ending is so abrupt and shocking where it's like all that tension you've been feeling for two hours and 15 minutes is just released in one moment. For the release for me, like of the tension happened when the basketball game was won. And I thought, wow, like this guy, he really did it. Like I did this whole movie I'm just like, he's nothing's ever going to work out for him. And I'm like, this actually kind of worked out. So I kind of like my blood pressure, it was starting to drop a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, you know, it's everything's kind of normal. And then that unexpected ending happened and then shot right back up. And I'm like, you know, like it, it was like for me, the release of stress happened like right before that surprise ending. <laughs> so the ending for me was just like, ah. And it was very unsettling. I think it's a happy ending in a very weird way. Like for a gambling addict to have his biggest score of his life. That's all he wanted. (laughs) That's all he wanted. He got it. Whatever happens after. I mean, it's never going to compete with that. So it's kind of better. You went out on the highest of highs. So this is where I feel like I have to bring things down a little bit. Just for the point of like pushing back. I like both of the movies y'all picked a lot. I watched them when they came out and I reviewed them for the website. I gave them both four star reviews, but I feel like they're both very like heavily championed films. So like, I feel like I can push back a little bit on them without seeming too overly critical for this one. I think James already touched on what bothered me about it a little bit was that the Safdie brothers just do this movie. Like they've, they've done this before, especially with good time. This felt like a repeat of a lot of the same tricks it's the same grimy tour through New York City where you see a lot of like unprofessional actors and there's this like one super famous professional actor at the center and that movie was Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. and they're playing this like despicable creep who exploits everybody they can and burns every social bridge they have to get to this like small-minded goal this sort of like heist at the end of the rainbow and then they both had the Onthrix Point Never score like a lot of it just felt very similar to that movie. And the difference here for me was just Adam Sandler's performance is what changed the movie, which I mean, I think it was funnier than what Robert Pattinson did in the other film, but I don't necessarily think it was that different overall. And I enjoyed good time more. I want to say because it was such a sucker punch, I didn't expect what was going to happen in it so much. We're like watching this. It was like, Oh, y'all are repeating a pattern you've done before. This was to greater success. People seem to like it more. I think maybe because it is more enjoyable, like good time is so punishingly upsetting. Um, But I think that's the same quality that makes me sort of gravitate it towards it more. It's like, it's such a despicable movie where you can't look at our Pat's character and be like, Hey, I see some redeemable qualities in him. He's actually a tragic figure. It's like, no, there's only darkness there. Uh, so I feel like more, that was like a more committed version. It was just less funny and less accessible, which is, I know kind of a ridiculous thing to say about this, like very unaccessible artsy fartsy Adam Sandler movie, but I, I kind of want to just push back a little bit. Well, I think good times for me, like it had more twists and turns as far as the plot. 
like where the story went, different offshoots, like different settings. And that kept it, kept me a little more like engaged with it in a certain way. Whereas uh, Uncut Gems is like a straightforward downward spiral. It's like a one track trajectory that doesn't, doesn't feel like it has a lot of like different settings and different offshoots, whatever. It is like straight into like the depths of hell. So I think it's like telling, like you said, pretty much the same story as like a good time, but in a more like, I would say like refined, clear one direction sort of way, which is the the direction, direction of like a gambling addict or an addict in general. I guess what I'm really saying is I hope they don't do this a third time in a row. Like I don't want to see their like Melissa McCarthy, abusive asshole movie Are next you sure? year. Like, really? That sounds Oh, maybe good. I do. Actually, Melissa McCarthy was like a bad choice. <laughs> I don't want to see their, their Kevin James. Oh, well, didn't Kevin James have a movie recently where he played Yeah, like, Becky. Yeah. That's probably why I was uh, conjuring that, that name. But yeah, I don't need to see them pull this trick a third time. Like, I've seen them make this movie twice, and it was kind of to diminishing returns for me. Where like, I still really liked this. I think it's a really solid film. But I don't think it held the same, like, you know, good time, like, pinned me to the back of my seat, like, fucking a Gravitron the whole time I was watching it. Whereas this one, I was like, oh, I see, I was, like, more aware of what they were doing, you know, I can kind of see the maneuvers. And, like, it really just became about his performance to me more so than anything else. I still think that they're early in their style or whatever, like, Uncut Gems feels like them refining what they did in good times. And... I do have a feeling they're not going to just settle on that. They are going to move forward into something else. And what that is, I really can't say. But I feel like they kind of hit a crescendo with that particular style for me in Uncut Gems. And I agree. Like, I don't want them to make this, like, style a third time. I want them to, like, add some different layers to it. So, I mean, you know, we'll see. And I'm saying that it all comes down to that performance, but... Um, it actually is like a really great performance. So it's not even really a complaint. Like he's really great. And I really liked his acceptance speech for the independent spirits awards. I think I showed that to y'all early this year. Yeah. It's like gut bustingly funny. Um, we watched so I'm it glad after that it was the Oscars, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where he joked about being snubbed for the Oscars too, which is really funny. Well, speaking of movies that got zero Oscar nominations, uh, what, what did James make us watch for today? James made you watch The Farewell. That's another great movie. I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so it's directed by Lulu Wang. I didn't know this, but uh, apparently it was based on a story she did that appeared on This American Life called What You yeah. Don't Know. The movie is partly autobiographical. And it's kind of funny the way the movie starts. I really love this is it says based on an actual lie, which is perfect. Like what a great entry into this film. So it stars Aquafina. Am I? And she's like mm-hmm. apparently a rapper. She plays a character named Billy who is a um, Chinese American. She's studying for, you know, her Guggenheim fellowship and, you know, unfortunately she gets rejected and she is very close with her paternal grandmother, Nai Nai. And she finds out that unfortunately Nai Nai has terminal lung cancer and 
it turns out that the family is planning this huge wedding for her cousin under the guise that, you know, we want to have this one big family gathering for Nai Nai, but we're, the whole like conflict of the film is this is kind of their, again, the title of the film, the farewell for the grandmother of the family. And it's like a way for them to say goodbye without acknowledging that she's dying of cancer. Again, the conflict is that the family, the route they've gone is we're not going to tell her that she's dying. We are going to pretend as if she's perfectly healthy, that these problems she's having are what they call, what, benign shadows, (laughs) which is funny. Um, The whole film, it's this really bittersweet, kind of moving, yet it's very playful. You know, it's about death, but it's also funny. So it's kind of got some very dark themes about death, but the film plays out very lightly in this comedic, you know, ensemble sort of way as the family kind of kind of debates like, is this right that we're lying to her to essentially take the burden of death off of her shoulders? And I think there's like a scene later on in the film where the father says like, this is what we do in China. Like the family shoulders the burden of death, not the individual, which again goes to this like collective versus individual, this East versus West sort of thing. And then at the center of this, you have Billy, who's kind of wrestling with the ethics of this. She doesn't think it's the right thing to do, but she kind of comes around to the idea later in the film. And anyway, it's just this like very touching, sweet kind of getting at what family means, what dying should be. And anyway, it sounds like it's maybe a tearjerker, and it is a little bit, but... I think what I personally loved about this movie was its sense of humor. Oh, it's very funny. And it's like subtle little observations and little glances and little moments of tenderness between family and connectedness while also delving into some of these kind of bigger, broad topics about the way, you know, Americans approach death and dying and the way, you know, China and the East approaches it. Again, I, I thought what made this movie so great was its performances and the way that it juggles the bittersweet and the funny. And it pulls them all off successfully and also is like thought provoking. It's kind of like a more refined like art film version of uh, Death at a Funeral, which we've talked about on this, posca- on this podcast like a long time ago. Mm. Oh, it is. I had, Yeah, I hadn't made that connection, but yeah, totally. Yeah, there's like these really tense social situations where you're supposed to keep the truth like under wraps and like keep your emotions under wraps. So you don't like show what you're thinking, what you're feeling and that tension in these like very strict social scenarios makes for like really funny situations. A character is supposed to be celebrating a wedding, but they just burst out crying, like weeping. Uh, and it's just like a funny release because the whole audience is like on board with that tension. I think the difference is maybe that Lulu Wong pushes for more of a, artistic bent than that movie that movie uh, death at a funeral is very much like a straightforward comedy but there's like a lot of choices in how things are framed or like uh the very orchestral music that like makes the film feel like sort of lushly artistic um and like sort of leans into how unreal the situation is there's that scene where they go take wedding photos in those like artificial environments for like photo backdrops 
and it just feels like this like surreal space like it's just like so outside of reality but but that's interesting because it is based in reality you know like it's a true lie it is something that that actually happened and apparently it's something that happens regularly in china and yet it's yeah it still seems surreal and i think it is shot in a very like artistic sort of manner um you know and the cinematography is great and the music's great and all that but it still has those like outright comedy moments like at the graveyard where they're like visiting the grandfather who's already passed away and they have those actors that are hired to go mourn at people's graves to show respect mm. and the like overperformative emotions of these like people who are like for hire family members that are supposed to weep at graves is like really funny especially in contrast to the more genuine like complicated emotions we've been dealing with the whole movie it's really funny to see these like sort of surface level acting of like what grief is supposed to look like uh and that part is just like basically just a gag like it's not even an artistic moment it's just like a straight up comedy gag so the movie really does have this like well-rounded like crowd-pleasing kind of thing where it touches you on like all levels well and that that same scene is mirrored with them doing the repetitive bowing which is like sincere and yet just as like performative and just as like funny, you know what I mean? So it, the way it balances the different tones, I think is really the strongest point of the movie. How like I can laugh throughout and also like have a tear in my eye. I, I think that's pretty great. And that's you know why we go to the movies. I want to feel complex emotions. Well, Brittany, you're coming at this fresh. This is your first time watching What'd it. What'd you think? So I like kind of avoided watching this movie because um, I lost both my grandmothers to lung cancer that I was like really close with. So I was like, oh, God, like, I don't want to watch this and like delve back into like a hole of depression. But I'm kind of glad that I watched it. Like it felt very like wholesome and just I don't know. I didn't expect it to be so lighthearted. Like I thought it was going to be like this really serious, like s- kind of sappy movie about death but it really wasn't which kind of took me by surprise but um i really liked it and i kind of i don't know kind of like got me thinking too like because at first you think like how can you like not tell somebody that they're dying but then at the same time it's like if she would have told her grandmother that like how different things would have been you know what i'm saying like it's kind of like do you want to put someone who's gonna die through the stress of like making all these medical decisions and dealing with all this shit every day or just like let them live and have a good time. So yeah, it was like also like really thought provoking. Yeah. It takes both sides of the argument very seriously. Like it doesn't really come down on like either one being right. Right. It just sort of like, it kind of leaves them both up in the air for like you to kind of figure it out. (laughs) Um, And I like that. It didn't seem like, it didn't seem like anti Western or anti like China. You know what I'm saying? Like it kind of gave you both perspectives in a very healthy balance, uh, which I think is really hard for movies like this to do. Like a lot of times it's a little biased, but it didn't feel like that. I kind of felt like Billy's character throughout the film, like, when it started off, I was like, oh, that's messed up. Like, you should probably tell your relative that they're dying, if you know. And then kind of as the movie goes on and you understand kind of Chinese culture. And again, I love that line about like family, like we put the burden on all our shoulder. And I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. And it makes sense in a collectivist society that that would be 
the norm. And I, I kind of found it to be, you know, I was at least like more open to it. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I could see that. I feel like there were a string of movies in the past few years. I'm actually even thinking of a TV show that came out this year called Never Have I Ever, um, where arranged marriage was dealt with in the same way. Like we've been trained as like a Western audience to see that practice as like being really just like against personal freedom and personal choice. But there's been a lot of movies over time that have sort of like explored how arranged marriage can work in the right culture and the right circumstance and how you can kind of grow to love someone Mm -hmm. and how, you know, there's no such thing as like an actual soulmate. Uh, Like you kind of just have to like either make it work or don't. And it's the the same thing where like, the people who know you and love you best are helping you make or making they're making a decision for you, but it's in your best interest. Yeah, there's like a collective wisdom that might, mm-hmm. you know, sort of overpower your own personal wants and desires. Right. And I've seen this is not like good research, but I saw like a TLC documentary about that. And apparently the like chances of it working out if it's arranged versus if you choose your partner is like not that different. You can learn to love anybody i get if you're i don't know it's like it it does feel wrong to say that but in the same way that the situation in the farewell feels wrong at first but i think once you put yourself in these characters shoes and again because the performances are so great you identify with them so much and they feel like real lived-in people and then you kind of can see the other side and being like yeah like that's totally understandable can I push back a little bit here? Oh, now? here he comes. This is where I get to here get a little negative. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me hear it. it is your time to shine. Okay. Yeah. So I like this movie a lot, just like Uncut Gems. I just have a couple little points that really drag it down for me, and they're both in the last five minutes. Is the ending the post-credits? Yes, that yes. is one of them. I actually, <laughs> I agree with you hundred percent. That was the number one thing that took it down a peg for me. So. There's this really great bookend where at the beginning, Billy is on the phone with her Nana or her, um, what's the word? Nai-Nai. And they are connected across the globe via cell phone. And she's like walking through New York City, talking to her grandmother in China. And the movie bookends that at the end after the grandmother has assumedly passed away. And she's walking alone and doesn't have that connection anymore. She's not on the phone with her Nai-Nai anymore. And is obviously kind of thinking about her. Or at least the the filmmaking implies that. Mm -hmm. And then she recalls this like sort of breathing exercise trick that her Nai-Nai has taught her. And exercises that. Like she does this like huh sound. (laughs) And then across the world in China, the birds fly out of the tree at her grandmother's apartment complex. And it's this really beautiful bookend where like they're still connected even though one of them is no longer a perfect ending mm-hmm. perfect ending the film immediately after that <laughs> the movie says hey wait a second she's so worried she's still alive i uh, know and it's know. like you're happy because you're like i'm glad this old lady's not dead but <laughs> well i felt conflicted because you know again it is autobiographical in a sense and apparently that is what actually happened I don't care. They didn't tell the grandmother <laughs> and then, you know, she lived six more years or whatever. But yeah, I'm with you, Brandon. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care about that. Like, you had the perfect ending and then adding that in totally confused me. I get it too. Because it, it felt like a healing moment. And then I'm like, oh, damn it. Like, 
it kind of like takes away some of the authenticity that kind of is in the movie. <laughs> well, it's like coming to grips with death and like in the end with the birds being released and she's connected with her grandmother, even though she's not there. Right. Like, okay, she's accepted that her grandmother has passed and, you know, but she still lives inside of her. She's a part of her. But yeah, then immediately it's like, no, well, she's actually alive. It's so weird. Like, fuck that. That was weird. And I, yeah, I totally could have done without that post scene. And honestly, scene. it wouldn't have been so bad if they just spaced it out a little. Like, let the credits roll for a little bit and then insert that in. If or you at really the end of the it. credits, right. yeah. It was so immediate. Like, you blink your eyes and you see her dancing. <laughs> it's like, guess what? Yeah, I'm what? like trying to cry over here in peace. Let me, like, experience an emotion for <laughs> right, a second. Right, it's like, well, I thought I understood this movie, but I guess... That's not what this was about. <laughs> it's okay. like if Howard would have dodged the bullet and uncut gems, you know, like yeah. actually Howard's fine. <laughs> like that takes away like everything that the movie's like building up and like kind yeah. of like the meaning of it. You know what I mean? I agree, man. Well, my second complaint is a lot smaller than that one. <laughs> uh, I just hate that Leonard Cohen cover where they're like driving to the airport and there's all of a sudden this like terrible sort of like folksy gospel song that sort of undercuts the like lush emotion of the movie. Like every other time the score comes in, it really amplifies the emotions, and, like really like sinks me into it. And then there's this sort of like this corny, like Christian gospel song when she like leaves her nine eye and goes to the airport, uh, you know, sort of parting ways for the final time. And that also took me out of the moment in the same way where it's like, I wanted to experience the sort of sadness of loss in that second. And then there's something very pedestrian and like, just distracting about that song choice. It was cheesy. It is cheesy. But outside of that, though, the music was very good in this oh, film. And like, yeah. I, I think also that scene, what I liked was like the pictures of kind of parts of China we haven't seen. You know what I mean? Just like regular pedestrian shots of China. And then another thing I loved was like the food. Just looking oh, yeah. at the food. Oh, my God. Like, Oh, my God. I'm so glad you mentioned that james i legit looked up a recipe for those meat pies yes yeah they look good i'm pretty stoked on trying to make them there's also something funny about the food being so good and like so you know alluring to us but like aquafina is too sad to enjoy it like her nine eyes like force feeding her these like delicious meat pies and she like can barely take a bite she's like so depressed right um there's like good humor in that as well but I don't know, it's like, you know, she's so, she can't eat her food. She's so sad that, like, she knows her grandmother is going to die. And, like, my grandmother passed away fairly recently. And, like, the truth is, like, we always take older people for granted. And, like, mm-hmm. we know in the back of the head and back of our head, like, they are going to pass away, like, sooner rather than later. It just takes something like an actual, like, cancer diagnosis to, make it real to us, you know, and that, and that's why I sort of like came around to the family's viewpoint of like, just let her enjoy these final years. You know, like I I thought that wedding scene at the end was phenomenal. Just, there was so much human emotion of like laughter and drunkenness and sadness too. Mm -hmm. Like when when his, you know, the uncle is, breaking down on stage also when the cousin is crying and he, cause he's so drunk and just like the whole spectrum of human emotions. 
I don't know, dude. We're we're all gonna have our farewell one day. No. You know. <laughs> oh, Brittany's never gonna die. No. All right. Well, <laughs> if I could, like, I'm like, I'm so scared of death. If I could be a vampire, I would. Like anything, please. I don't know. It, it's there. It's it's always kind of in the back of our mind, but that's kind of what makes life worth living. Anyway, I'm not going to get into a whole philosophical <laughs> philosophical thing about death. But I think this movie showed like how death can sort of bring meaning to life. Mm-hmm. You know, when you know someone is on borrowed time, you appreciate every moment. And I, I don't know. I think if we could take that and appreciate every little moment throughout our lives, we would be better for it. Also, my grandmother died of cancer a couple of years ago, uh, the one I was closest to. And I just want to note before we like really wrap up that like Susan Zhao, who plays the grandmother in this film, mm. is like perfect casting as like a grandmother. Yes. <laughs> like she is just so lovable and like sweet and really plays up the humor and like her obliviousness. Um, and actually took a huge pay dip to appear in this. Like she's like actually really well employed in China. Like she works all the time and like had to take a pay really? cut. Cause she like liked the script so much, I yeah. guess, or she was begged to do she it. She was like a good, like relatable grandma too. Like, how, right. like, I'm glad you mentioned that. Like, why don't you eat you stupid kid? You, you stupid know? child. You're so lovable. And then she like squeezes her butt cheeks. One of my grandmas that died would always call me like a son of a bitch <laughs> or like a motherfucker when I would see her. So it kind of reminded me of that where it's just like that playfulness and like, you know, they always support you or they're trying to like sneak you some cash to go do something fun. So yeah, like she was a pretty good G-Maw. She's got great laugh lines. Like in the uh, wedding shoot, the two kids who are getting married, who've only been dating for like three months, like aren't really lovey-dovey because that's just not the vibe. So she like pushes them together. So they're like really showing off how much they love each other in the photo. And then she like whispers to Aquafina. It's like, makes me wonder what they do when I'm not here. Like, do they right. touch each other? <laughs> she was funny. Yeah, there's one part that i don't know why i laugh so much but when they're like we'll just say they've been together for six months and it's like no about a year the grandma's like yeah yeah a year a year because <laughs> she's like so embarrassed of like what people think and i think that observational humor is just funnier because the tension is so high those laughs get bigger because you need to release you know <laughs> yeah you're like this is hilarious <laughs> and if they wouldn't have showed that she survived in the end <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I did a need to like let that complaint out just because, you know, <laughs> these movies get enough love. I need, I need to like sort of just. No, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it, too, because that was I thought was very bizarre and I almost forgot to mention it. So I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I had that in big, bold letters on the bottom <laughs> of my notes, like that ending <laughs> question mark exclamation point. And it's something that's come up so often lately. Like I'm thinking of like Rocket Man and. Uh, I, Tanya, mm-hmm. just like so many movies that are like bragging kind of in the credits where they're like, look, see, we did the accurate <laughs> portrayal of how this really happened. It takes it down a notch on like, it's how grand it is. Like it makes it trashy. But isn't that like um, Wrinkles the Clown did the same thing, dude? <laughs> mm. See, I think there's actually a major difference there. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? No, I do. But I do. Oh, my God. I want to finish that thought. We're like, the whole, ah, see what you've been watching. It's sort of a lie. Here's the actual autobiographical story behind it. It's like, I don't need that. I don't want that. I think the difference is that 
is a part of Wrinkles the Clown throughout the entire <laughs> film. So, like, if the farewell had incorporated documentary footage throughout it and it really played with, like, a multimedia tier where, like, the real world was sort of, like, mixed in with this, like, fictionalized version, then that ending would be totally at home with what the movie was doing. Instead, it's this, like, really out-of-nowhere deflation of, like, what it's been setting up. Wrinkles the Clown never gives you enough time to, like, feel like you have solid footing. It completely, like pulls the rug from under you every like five minutes. Well, that reveal about how it's performance art is like the last 25 minutes of the movie. True. Right. So it is a little bit the ending of the film. But I'd say throughout it, there are like multiple levels of like actual media, fictionalized stagings of like wrinkles, myths, uh, <laughs> actual found footage that they've posted on YouTube. And then like content kids have created, like it's really a multimedia approach. No, I know. I'm just happy that we could, you know, bring it back connect to Wrinkles and Clown. Yeah, I love I that. I never thought wrinkles. there'd be a way to connect Wrinkles and Clown to farewell. the Farewell. That's, that's great. I mean, I'm a real piece of shit. That's my favorite movie we've talked about today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Brandon. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Wrinkles the Clown is available on Hulu. Uncut Gems is on Netflix. And The Farewell is on Amazon Prime, which is really the big three of like streaming at home options. Right. Uh, So if you haven't seen any of these movies and you have any of those services, they're out there. They're a great combination. (laughs) Triple feature. (laughs) I hope so. Well, I want to experiment with the format of this show a little bit. I'm going to try to make it a weekly show again. I don't know if this is actually going to work. We tried this last summer too, where Cece and I were doing like extra episodes in between the big ones. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to do that again with Boomer, who oh. has been writing for the website since we started in 2015. Um, it has only been on once as a guest. And that was a really fun episode too. Yeah, it was great. We talked about Kath and Kim and Star Trek, speaking <laughs> of like really incongruous and Downton Abbey. Uh, <laughs> it's just really all over the place. Tune in next week. He and I should be talking about one of my favorite goofy 80s movies, Death Spa, which is oh, another wow. creepy, uh, in, uh, not internet, but like creepy computers uh, story, which I like bringing up as much as possible, which is how we got in Wrinkles the Clown in the first place. <laughs> and in the show notes, I'll link our actual top films of 2019 list. I believe the only movie we've talked about today that actually made that list was Uncut Gems because Hannah and James stunted for it so hard. Uh, but everything else yes, for good is a little reason. different. Yeah. So I don't know. Good time to look back at what we were thinking about as like the best movies of last year before we move on to like constructing a best movies of 2020 list, whatever the fuck that's going to yeah, be. Yeah. What's that going to look like? Oh God. <laughs> 2020 movies have been weird. Name something about this year that hasn't been weird. Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's fitting. And uh, the three of us should be back together for a couple more episodes where we like talk about a big group topic. Maybe something less all over the places today. Something a little more refined. Yeah, that's what we, we're always about. Refinement. <laughs> you're pretty refined until you shat all over the two refined movies we had. <laughs> I mean, the Oscars snubbed them, so they're fair game now. I can, uh, I can shit on the two A24 darlings of last year. I know, I'm teasing. I gave both of those movies four-star reviews. That was a good boy. That's and very I saw them in the theater. generous. Very generous. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you on a couple of weeks. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.